What's up, Tiaholics? Welcome back to the Tea on Crime. It's your host, Britt. And I'm the co-host, Jessica, wife and true crime skeptic. Just as a reminder before we get started, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply our own and are only presented to educate. We've linked the case sources in the episode notes below. Hold on real quick, you guys. We're jumping into an ad. This week, I am telling you the story of Charlie Brandt, and this is episode 12. Can you believe that? 12 episodes. Are you going to say, can you believe that every time we start a new episode? Yeah, because I'm always shocked every time we start a new episode. Like, hey, you're still showing up. I just wanted to make sure I was prepared for the same line every time. I'll switch it up next week. I can still believe it. Yes, I can believe it. (laughs) You can still believe that you're here. Here we are, 12. I'm going to warn you before we start this case that this week we're going to get into some gory details. I think when you're talking about true crime, it's important to stay close to the story of the victims. And in this case, the details are really crucial in understanding the entire story. So please take care while listening. I love that you listen, everybody. Consider yourselves lucky because the last time she told me a story. Our Patreon episode, by the way. She did not disclose that I was going to be shocked by the details, and boy, was I shocked. (laughs) Your eyes did want to pop out of your head a little bit. (laughs) You're warm, people. This case is going to confirm for us that you really never know anyone. Are you ready? As in people should be more guarded and not trusting of other people? As in, I think you can go your whole life and be with someone or be friends with someone and really have no idea who they are. The look you're giving me right now. (laughs) Is this where you tell me you're really a serial killer? (laughs) No. Okay. (laughs) Oh, man. Carl Brandt, otherwise known as Charlie, was born on February 23rd, 1957 in Fort Wayne, Indiana, to his parents, Herbert and Isle Brandt. Both of his parents were German immigrants, and once they came to America, his father took a job at a company called International Harvester, which is a company that makes farming and construction equipment. He started out as a draftsman for the company and worked his way up to a project engineer. Because of this job, their family moved around a lot. In 1968, the family moved back to Fort Wayne, Indiana, and this is where they end up settling down. Charlie was one of four siblings. He had an older sister who was two years older than him named Angela. He had two younger sisters as well that had more of an age gap. Charlie was the only boy in the family, really bonded with his dad since he was the only boy. They would often go hunting and fishing together, and they would spend a lot of time visiting Florida because this is where Charlie's grandparents lived. In 1971, the Brandt family was going to get a lot bigger. Charlie's parents found out that they were expecting, and everyone was so excited for baby number five. Can you imagine that? Five kids. That's a lot of kids. You come from a family of... Oh, three. Well, I guess that's not that many. (laughs) (laughs) Five just seems like a lot. I mean, I come from a family of... Six? Six. It's a lot of kids. Yeah, it is a lot of kids. Like I mentioned earlier, because of Herbert's job, this means that the family was constantly relocating, and that meant that the kids were always switching schools, mostly in the middle of the school year. Each kid really reacted differently to how they handled the change. Angela really excelled in school and making friends. Charlie, on the other hand, was a decent student, but was extremely shy and had a really hard time making friends. 
This case really begins on January 3rd, 1971. Everyone had a normal day and nothing seemed out of the ordinary. The family all had dinner together and they were celebrating that the family had just bought their first color TV. They all hung out that night and watched an FBI show together. Once the show was over, everyone went and did their own thing. Angela recalled that she remembered getting into her bed that night and reading a book. Charlie's parents were in their bathroom. His father was shaving and his mother was taking a bath. Charlie's mother at the time was eight months pregnant. To date, Angela is the only one that has recounted this night. And according to her, she was reading in her bed when she heard what sounded like fireworks. She jumped out of bed to see what the noise was and where it was coming from. She made it to her doorway when she heard her father say, Charlie, stop. She also heard her mother screaming out for Angela to call the police. Now remember, Charlie's only 13 years old at this time. On this night, Charlie had went and grabbed his father's gun and ran into their bathroom and shot both his mother and his father. Oh my God. Wow. Just getting right into it. Okay. After that, he ran into Angela's bedroom, who was 15 at the time, and Charlie pointed the gun right at her. He attempted to shoot her, but didn't realize that he had run out of bullets. Once he realized that the gun was out of bullets, he threw the gun on the ground. Angela was able to grab the gun with her foot and kick it straight under her bed. Charlie immediately began to attack Angela physically, and he was able to get her down on the ground where she was lying on her back. Charlie got on top of her and tried to strangle her. Halfway through his attempted strangulation, Charlie stopped and seemed to have snapped out of this trance-like state that he was in. Angela tried to calm him down and started to tell him that everything was going to be okay. All of their siblings would get in the car together and they would drive off and it would all be okay. Angela convinced Charlie to go upstairs to get their little sister's blanket. Charlie was acting really on edge after everything that had just happened. He was begging Angela not to leave him. She promised that she wouldn't leave him, and the minute he got off her to go walk up the stairs to get the blanket, she headed towards the door and ran for her life. Well, yeah. Okay. Angela described this scene as the one from the movie The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where the girl's literally running for her life, and she said that's exactly how she felt in that moment. Angela was able to run to the neighbor's house and get help. Once Charlie discovered that Angela was gone, he immediately ran out the door and began to chase her. He ran right to the same neighbor's house. Luckily, Angela was able to get inside first, but he knocked on the door, and as soon as the neighbor opened, Charlie immediately said, I just shot my mom and dad. 911 and medical responders were called to the scene. Charlie's mother and his unborn sibling both died instantly from the gunshot wound. His father survived and was able to confirm what Angela had told the police, which was that Charlie was the one that had shot them. After the shooting, Charlie confided in Angela and basically told her that he didn't remember what had happened. He didn't remember the shooting, grabbing the gun, he basically blacked out. When Herbert was asked in the hospital why he thought his son would do this, he told police that he had no idea. Angela again recounted the same story to police and said that while Charlie was on top of her, attempting to strangle her, he broke out of this trance-like state and he asked Angela, what am I doing? To which Angela replied, I have no idea, but I think you shot dad. When police asked Charlie what in the world would cause him to do this, he responded by saying it was multiple things, including the fact that he was really stressed out at school and that two days prior to the killing, him and his father went out hunting, and Charlie's father killed the family dog. Oh, wow. 
There's basically no information out there in regards to the dad killing the family dog, which, of course, is traumatic for anyone to see. But I don't think those two reasons provided is really enough to to kill your mom or to attempt to kill your family members in general. No, it's not. But it's a good segue into somebody's psyche for a future insanity plea. So that's going to be interesting. (laughs) The police weren't understanding Charlie's reasonings. And no matter how many times he explained it, no one could rationalize what he had done. Investigators ordered Charlie to undergo three different psych exams to try and figure out his motive. Each time, they came back inconclusive. They came back and stated that Charlie had no mental illness to explain why he had done this horrible act. Hold on real quick, you guys. We're jumping into an ad. So again, I'm going to remind you that Charlie was only 13 years old at the time that all of this was happening. Because of how young he was, he was not able to be tried for murder under the state laws of Indiana. Instead, he was sentenced to serve one year at a state psychiatric hospital. That was it. One year. I'm not surprised. After one year, he was released back into society and the family never spoke about it again. Everyone kept it to themselves, and it basically became the dark family secret. Charlie's two youngest sisters spent most of their lives believing that their mother had died in a car accident because that was the story that they were told to cover up what Charlie had done. They didn't find out about what really happened until 2004. So now remember that this case took place in 1971. So that's well over 30 years of living in this lie that they were told. And he got released back to the family, and the family happily took him in yeah happily took him in pretended like everything was fine oh, yeah, no. just no big deal let's never speak about it again nope. and moved on nope don't worry we're not finished yet let's fast forward to 2004 charlie and his wife terry were living such a great and happy life in big pine key florida which is the southern portion of the florida keys Charlie spent most of his life in Florida from around age 15 until well into his adult life. After Charlie was released from the hospital into the care of his dad, his dad then moved the family to Florida so that they could get away from their small town in Indiana. I'm sure everyone knew the story, and it would be hard to grow up around that. They also had their grandparents out in Florida. About a year of living in Florida, Charlie's father gets remarried, and then he moves the family back to Fort Wayne, Indiana, Everyone except Charlie. Charlie is left behind, and he remains living with his grandparents. Interesting. So everything was fine. Moved him to Florida, but then dad gets remarried, leaves Charlie behind. So I don't know if that was his father's doing or if it was the new wife. I don't know if the new wife really knew what happened and was like, hey, I don't want you around. He moved on pretty quickly. He moved on very quickly. And Charlie's the one, we're sure Charlie's the one that shot the mom. (laughs) I see how this could go somewhere else. (laughs) I'm just curious. (laughs) Different rabbit hole, but yes. Just checking. In his adult life, Charlie was an engineer and was in charge of a radar blimp that would stop drugs from being smuggled into the U.S. Terry and Charlie were married in 1986, and for most of their marriage, they had what everyone thought was the perfect marriage. They were so in love that people described their relationship as almost disgusting. They had this thing they would do together that every morning they would make lunch for each other because they said that lunch made by the one you love always tasted so much better. If they can cook. (laughs) What? (laughs) It 
it's true though lunch made by you tastes a lot better than lunch made by me but that's probably for much different reasons because you can't cook that is true very cheesy but a lot of people wanted what they had back then september of 2004 was a pretty remarkable time back in the brant's life hurricane ivan was happening and the people of the keys were told to evacuate charlie boarded up his home with such precision the kind that you could really only get from an engineer. Each board was cut perfectly, and all of the doorknobs had a perfect hole cut out on the board. They left their house in perfect condition. They didn't expect to be gone long. Charlie didn't think it would be that bad of a storm, and he thought it was ridiculous that they were even evacuating at all. Terry and her family insisted that they needed to leave, just to be safe. Terry and Charlie were going to drive a few hours north to stay with Terry's niece, Michelle, in Orlando. When they got in their car and started the drive, I don't think they realized that they would never make it back to their house in the Keys again. Oh, okay. The first night that they arrived, one of Michelle's friends was supposed to come over and visit. Many of Michelle's friends knew Aunt Terry and Uncle Charlie, so it was really common for her friends to stop by when they were visiting. Michelle called her friend that evening and told her friend, don't bother coming over. We've all been drinking. I think we might have been drinking a little too much. And now Terry and Charlie are arguing. So just stay home and we'll catch up later. The next few days that they were there were pretty uneventful. Charlie had plans to see his dad as well as one of his younger sisters since they lived about an hour away. During his visit with his dad and his younger sister, Jessica, Jessica recalls that the entire time Charlie was stating that he just wanted to get back home, that coming and staying with Michelle was really Terry's idea, and that he was very insistent on getting back. Interesting. Right? It's a little weird. When their visit was over, Jessica said that Charlie embraced her and her dad like he had never done before. He held them tight and said how much he loved them both, and she said it felt like a really strange goodbye. Okay. Kind of like he was planning something, right? Well, yeah, that's what it sounds like. But really wanting to get back home at the same time. And then Terry would miss him. (laughs) Charlie and Terry were planning on leaving on September 12th. Their bags were packed and lined up against the front door. They were ready to take off. But something shifts and something changes. Charlie decides that he wants to stay for one more night. Now it's September 13th. Michelle's mom and her usually talked every single day. But on September 13th, her mom calls and Michelle's phone goes straight to voicemail, which is no big deal. Sometimes it goes to voicemail, but Michelle always returns the call. But one day passes and now two days pass and no phone call has been returned. By the third day, her mom is sure that something is wrong. So they spent the night on the 12th, so the night of September 12th into September 13th. Right, and they were supposed to leave on the 12th. He had packed his bags, put them up against the wall, ready to take off, and then all of a sudden, for no reason at all, he changes his mind and decides they're going to stay one more night, which is pretty ironic considering he was very adamant adamant about leaving. And then he did the weird goodbye embrace. Okay, Yes. got it. Yes. Michelle's mom calls one of her daughter's friends, Debbie, and explains that she can't get a hold of Michelle and that she also can't get a hold of her sister, Terry, who is supposed to be there. Debbie has a key to Michelle's house, so Debbie heads over. Before she pulls into their driveway, Debbie calls their other friend, Lisa, and describes the situation and asks her if she will come over as well. Smart lady. Right? She was prepared. Lisa is the friend that Michelle called the first night and told her to stay home and that they'd catch up later. 
Lisa agrees to head over. Before Debbie can finish pulling into the driveway, she can see that both cars are still there. So she knows that everyone must be home. She walks up to the front door and begins knocking, but no one comes to the door. She waits and she can't hear anything behind the door. It doesn't seem that there's any sort of noise happening. Her knocks become more frantic. She tries to put the key inside to unlock the door, but because she is in a full panic mode at this point, the key is jamming and she can't get it to turn correctly. So she just randomly is starting to get nervous, probably because it's eerily quiet. Yes. So then she's freaking out. The key jams. Nothing's working out for her. Okay. She begins to walk around the house and walks over to the living room window. She begins hitting the window and calling out Michelle's name. She walks back to the bedroom window, keeps banging and calling out Michelle's name again, but she isn't getting a response. As she is finishing walking around the entire house, she can see through the garage window and inside she sees Michelle's uncle, Charlie, hanging from the roof of the garage from a bedsheet. Debbie immediately calls police. Oh, as in he hung himself? Yes. Can you imagine that though? Like you're freaking out. No one's answering. You can't even get your key to go inside the lock because you're in panic mode. You literally walk the whole perimeter of the house, go back to the garage, and there's Charlie. Interesting. I don't even know what thought would go through your head. Like, obviously, she probably knew that something was very wrong. Mm-hmm. Once police arrive, they use Debbie's key to unlock the front door to the house, which they got it in. Mm-hmm. What police are going to find inside this house shocked even the most seasoned police officers. Inside the house, they found Terry slumped over the side of the couch with seven stab wounds all to her chest. They made their way through the house and back to Michelle's master bedroom. When they opened the door to Michelle's room, it has been said that the scene they found was so horrific that officers ran out of the house to throw up. Oh, so is this the part where it's going to get graphic? Yes. So obviously his wife's death was not the graphic part. It was the niece's. Yes. So he stabbed his wife seven times and just left her body on the couch, which I thought was interesting. Seven times is very excessive, but they always say, you know, obviously when it's a romantic interest or there's passion behind it, it gets a little excessive. Okay. Michelle's body was placed on her bed. It was determined that her cause of death was one fatal stab wound to her chest. But after she was deceased, she had been decapitated. What? We really got to do video podcast because your your face right now, we just jumped right to it. Okay. Her head was placed next to her body as if her killer was making her watch the things that were about to happen to her. Her breasts were severed. Her body was cut open and her organs, including her heart, had all been removed and placed around her body. Her intestines were put in the trash. The rest of the room was covered with her underwear and bras from Victoria's Secret. What the hell? Can you imagine that? But all of this, the coroner, I'm assuming, was able to show that this happened, all of these horrible things happened to her after she died, correct? Right. During, okay. Right, right. Yeah, and I think that was part of the reason, honestly, that he probably decapitated her and placed her head the way that it was, was basically watch what I'm about to do to you. Because I guess I don't understand why else he would place her head like that. You would think that there would have to be some kind of logic that he had there. Well, it's interesting that he covered her room with her underwear and bras from Victoria's Secret. So 
that's different. Okay. Police went outside to talk with Debbie, as well as Lisa, who had by this time arrived. Police asked Debbie to describe Michelle, and police confirmed what they feared. It was Michelle inside. Police told Debbie and Lisa about the murder. In the first few hours after this horrific crime, everyone is confused and so baffled. No one is understanding who would want to hurt Michelle, Terry, and Charlie. But police were quick to correct the people. The police had a theory. Mm -hmm. This was a murder-suicide by Charlie. But the family was not understanding. Charlie was the most normal guy in the world. Terry and Charlie were married for almost two decades, and they had the most perfect relationship in the world. He had a great job. He was smart. He loved spending time with Michelle, and he had spent so much time with Michelle for years. The police came to the conclusion that because of the matter of death, it was obvious that Charlie had killed Michelle and Terry and then killed himself. But the reason behind this, it was a total mystery at this point. The very first thing that police did, of course, was pull Charlie's records, and they were totally clean. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because I'm assuming since he committed that crime when he was younger, that his files were sealed. Right. He had no prior arrests. His fingerprints had never been put into the system before. And prior to this horrible event, Charlie was your average Joe. Well, serial killers usually are. It's pretty smart if you think about it. Uh, I mean, on his part. Because he just went on to live this normal life and no one would ever know. Yeah, I blame his dad for that. Taking him back just so willingly and... I don't know why you would take a child back after that type of horrific crime that they committed. Even a year in a psychiatric hospital, there's no way that he would have been in any type of headspace to return to society. No. And there was nothing that I could find that showed that... Charlie, after that year in the hospital, went on to receive further help down the line. I think it was exactly like I said earlier, and he was released back to the care of his dad, and then they went about their life, and no one talked about it ever again. And this was in the early 70s, right, when he committed that crime? So I'm sure a lot of people don't know. Social work-wise, back in the early 70s, psychiatric hospitals, they were still housing individuals with disabilities, intellectual disabilities. So schizophrenia, bipolar, right, cerebral palsy, you name it, all of them. And they were holding them in these psychiatric-type facilities under really horrible conditions, as well as way back when, right, women who were gay were also housed in psychiatric hospitals. So I think because it was so early in time that they obviously didn't have any programs developed, unlike nowadays. There's there's a program for every type of situation, but back then it was definitely lacking. So I'm sure that they thought something just happened. He was a kid. There's no way. He made a mistake. Yeah. Yeah something must have happened when he was younger or something must have triggered him he'll be fine and then he obviously got out and continued to live a quote non-quote normal life and you know how much i hate the word normal (laughs) yes so everybody knows soapbox (laughs) moment there is no such thing as normal please define what normal means that's a mic drop moment right there's no definition of normalcy i hate that term they're normal. So I guess my question is when he went through those three different exams, 
Do you think that he basically, I guess as a teenager, just knew the right things to say for them to come back inconclusive? Or do you think it was the fact that times were different and they weren't really prepared and equipped to help in the way that the medical field is now? I think the latter. So with the serial killer right movement, when even the FBI was being built, their criminal department, they would send out those types of officers who would actually go and interview serial killers, like what's the one that would rape all the women with the husband next to them? What was his name? He was the whatever. The Boston Strangler? Yeah, whatever. I don't know their names. (laughs) I know Ted Bundy and whomever. So these officers would go and interview these people because they were trying to build the criminology department to where you would go and obviously realize something's going on with these individuals. There are similar characteristics. They have similar mental illness symptoms, right? And then that's when they would look to their background. Are their parents divorced? Did they get abandoned by one parent? Did they hurt animals? I know that was a big thing. Exactly. So it was kind of like a little checklist, right? right? Check, check. And I think with this, it's very similar. I don't think that they had the technology like we do now. And mental illness was still a really big unknown, even in the 70s, which wasn't even that long ago. Right. So I think that he passed his exam, obviously, but they didn't know what to really look for other than the obvious, right? He shot and killed his mom. Right. But if you had a psychologist look back at it now, I'm sure that they would be able to see characteristics and or symptoms to specific mental illnesses to where they could have based that and gone in that direction, like disassociative personality disorder, all that stuff. So so do you think the healthcare system dropped the ball there? I mean, are they to do they play a, a role in this in blaming them or is it again basically he went back to his family we pretended like nothing happened everything was normal we allowed him essentially to live a quote-unquote normal life by not speaking about it again i wouldn't say that the health system dropped the ball i think that they probably did the best with what they had at the time right i can't you can't really judge them too harshly because they didn't have technology that we have now yeah yeah so i mean I don't think he should have been released by any means because <laughs> right. obviously he's a killer. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I do think that he was obviously given the opportunity to continue to kill. So even if he doesn't have any recorded other killings except for this, I would be curious to know if he actually did kill. The right, leader. right. So the police were about to discover a very different man once Angela was called in for questioning. Before police can even start the interview, Angela says, I have to tell something to you people. The next thing that would come out of her mouth would forever change this investigation. She says, the reason that I don't seem to be as shocked as everyone else about Charlie murdering his wife and niece is because he's murdered before. Police are shocked because they pulled his records and everything was fine. He had no history of ever doing something like this before. The police thought Angela must have been confused, but she kept insisting. She told police that there was no way that they would ever have his records because they were sealed. He was only 13 when he killed their mother and unborn sibling. Angela goes on to tell this horrific story that took place in 1971. Police can now see the darkness that existed in Charlie. They kind of have a motive now to go along with this horrific case. 
Now I know what question you're going to ask me. Is he solely focused on women? I'm surprised you haven't asked me that yet. I, that was going to be my next question, right? <laughs> because whenever we talk about just you and I, not even on the podcast, when you and I debate serial killers, I also have a checklist psychology-wise, right? <laughs> Do they hurt animals? Are they mentally disturbed? Do they show any characteristics? Do they hurt women? Are all the women of the same description? What ethnicity is the serial killer? Are his victims the same ethnicity and or different ones? So that way, if they were different, that tells me that he might have he or she. Sorry, women can also be serial killers. Women can kill too. Elaine Wernos. (laughs) But it just goes to show, right, everybody has a certain type of way that they kill because it you're looking at their psyche essentially so did he just only kill women (laughs) well i want to tell you that he was never linked to a male victim besides shooting his dad but i think that's important to note that while he was growing up everyone that knew charlie said he was a mama's boy and that he had a great relationship with his mom But when I go back and think about not only the manner that Michelle's body was found in, but also the fact that her underwear and her bras were all over the place, it kind of makes you wonder. Well, I think my first question would have been, he did not kill his dad. He only wounded and or shot his dad. So I guess my question would be, where did he shoot his dad? Did he shoot him in the arm, on the side? Was it anywhere that could have been potentially fatal or was it more of like a, a surface type wound? Yeah. And I'm not sure to answer that question, but that is a great question. So my question is, are some people just born bad apples? Remember, Charlie underwent three different exams with three different psychologists. And each time everyone came back and said that Charlie had no mental illness, that he seemed quite normal and that there was no known reason why this happened. So they all assumed he basically just snapped. Yeah, but when you look back on Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer, well, Jeffrey Dahmer, people say was a little weird, (laughs) but like Ted Bundy, right? He was extremely intelligent. He was charming. He He was was social. Yes, Yes. he had all these, he seemed quote and unquote normal. Same with John Gacy. Right. So I, I don't think seeming normal again i hate that word is a great definition but just because he didn't display any mental illness at that point when he was that age does not mean that he did not start to display them a little bit more as he got older and he started developing more so is once evil always evil Do you think if you suppress something long enough that it'll eventually explode out of you? Well, look at it this way. So let's say you want to go on a diet, right? And you love (laughs) cake. It's a horrible example, but yes. You love cake, but you are told, listen, for your health, if you eat any more cake past a point, you're going to get diabetes. So, (laughs) and you love cake more than anything in the entire world. And now because you can't have it, I guess the question now I'm going to pose to you is, if you go without something long enough, (laughs) will you eventually cave in? Yes, absolutely. I would for sure go in for that cake. Not that most people would. But, you know, killing people and eating cake, two separate things. But you get the gist (laughs) of what I'm saying. Police didn't think that Charlie had been suppressing it this entire time. 
The murder that took place in 2004 and what had been done with Michelle's body was too perfect. Mm -hmm. The question came up, how many victims did Charlie Brandt actually have? Yes. The further investigators looked into Charlie's perfect life from his teen years to his 30s. They realized that no one really had the facts of a whole story, but once pieced together, a very disturbing picture was emerging. Yeah, I'm curious to see if there were other women victims missing horrific deaths around where he was at the time of his coming to age, I guess you right. could say. College years, whatever. Angela told police that she was terrified of him. She would never visit with him, but once in a great while, Charlie would make it a point to visit Angela, and when these visits would happen over the years, she would sleep in her room and barricade herself in so that he couldn't get through the door. She also never wanted Charlie around her children. Co-workers of Charlie also started to come forward and say that when Charlie would talk about his niece Michelle at work, he would never call her by name. He would call her by a nickname that he gave her. He would call her Victoria's Secret, which, right, as okay. we know, is the same brand of bras and underwear that were thrown all over her room the night she died. It's also the same name of the magazine that Charlie himself had a subscription to. It was almost like an obsession he had with her. He would discuss the men that Michelle dated and how none of them were good enough for her. Interesting. Police also discovered that Charlie had some weird items in his house that included an anatomy book, mm -hmm. even though he had no history in the medical field. And on the back of their bedroom door, there was a poster. The poster is of the full anatomy of a woman. He also had internet searches for snuff films and anatomy photos. Okay. I have one last piece of the picture that all of these facts are creating. Charlie's best friend's name is Jim. Jim was married to Charlie's sister, Angela, at one point. They later divorced. Jim was one of the very few people that knew of what Charlie had done in the past, which makes sense. There would be some family history there that is probably pretty important to know. When Angela and Jim get divorced, Jim goes over to Charlie's house in the Keys for a little manned weekend getaway. They were going to drink, go fishing, and spend time together. While they were out fishing and on the boat, Charlie tells Jim that the best revenge to get back at someone is to kill them, cut them open, and eat their heart out. Which is disturbing for so many different reasons, but also because the person he is talking about is his sister. So I am going to tell you that after I did all of the research on this, I did find an article that reported right before the killings happened... Charlie's wife, Terry, had actually gone to one of her friends in confidence and told her that something was wrong with Charlie. So I think she was kind of suspecting who he was and how that situation came to be was that one day she's at work, she comes home, goes through the house, she can't find Charlie anywhere. So with their house, they had a little mud room. Uh -huh. Right. And that's okay. where he after he would go fishing, he would cut and clean the fish and do whatever mm -hmm. it is that they do out there. So Terry comes home, can't find Charlie anywhere, goes out to the mudroom. Charlie is standing at the sink, head to toe, covered in blood. And he had one of those like aprons on that. I don't know. You clean like the butcher. Yes. Okay. Right. So he's covered in blood. Terry says she felt really uneasy about the situation, kind of must have given Charlie a look, like I think anybody would. And Charlie immediately started telling her, I was cleaning the fish. I got the fish. I was cleaning the fish. And she just remembered telling her friend, standing there being so disgusted, like this is so much blood. 
-hmm. And this was prior to her obviously passing away. So I don't know if that played into Charlie thinking that she was catching on. I'm not sure. I don't know if they ever got to have a conversation about it. But I also do want to bring up the fact that I'm still stuck on Charlie not wanting to be at Michelle's and then immediately wanting to go home. Like he was so persistent about wanting to get back home. It makes you wonder why. (laughs) I think it's because he knew that he had a fetish, right? And I think it's kind of like dangling the bait right in front of somebody. Yeah. Somebody's fetish and or soul obsession right in front of them and telling them suppress your desire. Yeah. And I don't think he could take it anymore. Yeah. So obviously there are no other reports that have ever been found of any other victims that were linked to him. Charlie obviously committed suicide, so we'll never know. He will take everything with him. But I do believe that there were definitely more victims. I don't think he went that entire time. So I guess I would be interested to know how many women went missing in areas he was around or I don't know. It's just crazy. And how many women did he cut open like that and literally eat their heart? Because that's what you're going to say. He's talking about your sister and you're going to say the best revenge is to kill them, cut them open and eat their heart out. I doubt he did it with any humans. I'm sure he did kill other women, but they probably wouldn't have been linked to him because number one, look at his his past, right? He shot his mom and then he stabbed his wife. And then he did this really horrific graphic of cutting off his niece's head, cutting her open. So they're three very separate types of crimes and most serial killers stick to one type of crime. They have their one niche that they always do. And like I told you before, the perfect serial killer, if I was going to be a serial killer, (laughs) I would literally do things different every single time because nobody would be able to piece anything together. Right. Just for the hell of it. (laughs) Just to keep everybody guessing. But listen, if this happens in real life, it's not me. (laughs) If I go missing. I'm going to edit this out. That is the case of Charlie Brandt. What did you think? I think it's interesting. I think it's sad that these things happen. And I would have given a lot to be a fly on the wall during these psychiatric exams. Oh, for sure. I guarantee you he had characteristics of multiple mental illnesses. Absolutely. Hold on real quick, you guys. We're jumping into one more ad. And I'm your co-host, Jessica, and we will be back next week to serve you more tea on all things true crime. Bye!